Hello and shalom. Welcome to this episode of Image Bearers Radio. I'm your host, Joe Amon. We got a great show ahead, so buckle up and hang on. Here we go. Shalom, shalom. Welcome to this episode of Image Bearers Radio. I am your host, Joe Amon, coming to you all the way from Southwest Louisiana. How are you? Hope you're well. Hope your week is going well and uh, things are going good for you. Hope you're enduring the heat of summer and all of that kind of stuff. And I hope that Hashem is blessing you mightily. Uh, if you're here for the first time, just want to say welcome. Or if you're here for the hundredth time, welcome back. Love our listeners and are so thankful to all of you, ladies and gents, for the community that you're creating around Out of Ashes Ministries and Image Bears Radio. Super awesome, and I just appreciate you all so very, 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 very much. For those of you that don't know, I'm the pastor at Out of Ashes Ministries in DeRitter, Louisiana. And uh, if you are looking for a Sabbath fellowship, maybe you have a fellowship, but it meets at uh, a different time, or maybe you're, uh, you're in a place where you don't have fellowships that are real close, I'd love for you to join us. We live stream our Shabbat fellowships every Saturday morning at 10 a.m. Central Time. And so uh, we live stream on our website at outofashesministries.org. We also live stream to Facebook and to YouTube. So however you like to, uh, to receive content, we are pretty much there. And uh, we'd just love, for ha- love to have you pop in and say Shabbat Shalom or don't say anything and just watch. Uh, it'd, be, it'd be great. Um, we are uh, uh, looking forward to the fall feast. And uh, so just want to add a quick little plug here. If you are looking for some place to Sukkot, some place to celebrate Sukkot, uh, first of all, please find a place close to you if you have one uh, and, and meet some people around in your area. Uh, but if you just don't know of anything near you, of course, we're in southwest Louisiana, which is uh, kind of out of the way for a lot of folks. But if you're you know, within driving distance, we have a, a Sukkot that, that we have information about on our website. Again, outofashesministries.org slash Sukkot-21. Uh, and you can go on there, you can find out all the scheduling information and, and all of that, and you can register, uh, you can order t-shirts there, you can do all the kind of stuff that you need to do there, and of course there's our contact information, you can reach out to us and let us know if you have any other questions. Um, we always look forward to Sukkot, and would look forward to seeing a bunch of you guys there, guys and gals there, if you need a place to celebrate. So I think that's all the preliminaries out of the way. Uh, Let's go to the Father for just a moment before we jump into our episode today on all things Devarim. Avinu Malkinu, our Father and King, we bless you. We bless you. Your creation blesses you today. As we start the book of Deuteronomy, of Devarim, uh, a book of uh, that is, is so full of beauty, Father, we pray that as Moshe prayed humbly, that we would reflect who you are in our world.
All right. So as we have worked our way through the Torah, um, this, this cycle, uh, it's been a, a different cycle for me, and I, I guess each one of them should be. You know, that's, that's why we do this every year, uh, while we celebrate the Modim every year. Uh, everything is in a cycle because that's how, that's how life works, uh, especially that's how the, the Israelite mindset, the, the Hebrew mindset, uh, Eastern mindset works is in cycles rather than necessarily linear. And um, so this year has been different for me. And so what we've tried to do is uh, during our Shabbat fellowship, especially uh, when we've covered a, a Parsha or a book, what we've tried to do is say, well, okay, like what is the purpose of each book? And uh, that kind of helps us to, to figure out how we're going to read it. Um, and because as many of you know, we've talked about it before, uh, my testimony, and this may be your testimony, I usually get a lot of like head nods and amens when I talk about this, but depending on the background you came from, um, maybe it was like a hyper-spiritual kind of background, or maybe uh, where, you know, we're just kind of like everything was up to interpretation, or maybe like I grew up, it was like Southern Baptist, and, and if you ever forgot what we believed as Southern Baptist, you could walk out in the foyer, and there was a big, pretty framed, like, thing, our statement of faith, right? And that's what we believed, that's what everybody believed, and if you didn't believe that, you weren't one of us. And uh, so, and, and outside of those kinds of things, those things in the statement of faith, it was kind of every time you asked a question, it was like, well, that's a mystery, and we'll find out, you know, in heaven or, or whatever. And um, so the, there's, there wasn't a lot of space in many of our upbringings for alternative ways to read Scripture. And so when many of us came, when I came to Torah, I don't want to speak for you, so when I came to Torah, I was like, man, the Torah, finally, there's a, there's a list of commandments, and they're, they're straightforward, they're black and white. This tells me exactly how God wants me to live for Him in every detail of my life. And so finally there's some answers. You know, it's like such a, such a relief. And then as you start to study Torah, and as you, you get into it, you realize, well, like, wait, this isn't black and white at all, right? This is, this is like mostly gray. And what I mean by that is, just take the Sabbath because it's low-hanging fruit, right? Um, you know, do no work on the Sabbath. Okay, cool. So what's the first question that most of us ask? Well, what is work? What, what does God mean by work, right? Well, holy smokes, you just, you just opened up a Pandora's box of debate and history and interpretation, um, the likes of which we've never seen in, in the Christian world in, in some, some way, shape, or form. So, um, you know, the, the, the more you study Torah, the more you realize that being gray is not a bad thing. Being gray is, it, it pushes you to, to seek Hashem, to, to seek Yah, and to, um, to, to really delve into the, the areas of, uh, you know, of interpretation and the history. And, ah, oh, it's just such, it's such goodness. And so we, we've kind of talked about, like, Bereshit, Genesis is, um, you know, is, is creation. And we've spent a lot of time in creation. It's kind of the introduction to the story. Um, and then we have uh, Exodus, which is redemption. And then we have Vaikra, which is, uh, which is holiness and, and how we're expected to live. And then we have Bamidbar. And this year, Bamidbar uh, Numbers has taken on kind of a unique um, meaning for me. Because I think, as I said, a podcast or two, a radio show or two ago, um, in the Christian world, it was called Numbers. And I didn't like math, and so I had no interest, especially when I started reading it and reading like censuses and stuff. Like, I just really could care less about this. Um, and so it, numbers really kind of always fell flat for me. But then coming to start, study the, the Hebrew side of it, Devarim, uh, Bamidbar, I mean, in the wilderness, I thought, hey, I've been in some wildernesses. Let's check and see what this is about. 
And even though the wilderness is a big part of Bamibar, obviously its namesake, and numbers are a big part of Bamibar, really the thrust of Deuteronomy, uh, of numbers, I'm sorry, I'm on a Deuteronomy kick today. Uh, the, the thrust of numbers is really preparation for entering the land and being good stewards of the promise. And uh, that kind of continues on with, with Devarim, with Deuteronomy, we get in today. So I want to talk really quickly just as a kind of setup for Deuteronomy. We didn't do the, the Parsha last week. We did Tisha B'Av uh, last week. And if you fasted for Tisha B'Av uh, with the Jewish people, I hope your fast was well. Um, and uh, reading Lamentations and however you recognize the day. Um, I hope it was deep and meaningful for you, not only as an experience, but I hope you were prompted to, uh, to, to help in the rebuilding of Israel and the regathering of the exiles and all, in some kind of way. And so um, we, I want to kind of put uh, both this week's Parsha, Dev, uh, Vayed Hanan, and last week's Parsha, Devarim, kind of together in one, and yet we're not going to talk about either one of them really specifically. Are you ready? Are you ready? <laughs> Don't worry. It'll make sense in a minute. So first of all, um, ways to, uh, let's just talk about the purpose of Devarim first. So the, the purpose of Devarim, as we said, um, is Moshe's uh, preparation for the people uh, to enter the land, uh, the new generation, right, the second generation, for them to enter the land. Uh, and so that's, that's one major overarching purpose is this is, this is in, in the rabbinic um, tradition, this is the last five weeks of Moshe's life. And so he, he spoke all of Devarim in the last five weeks of his life. And I know there's other options to explain the book of Deuteronomy, and we'll talk about some of those, but that's the traditional, uh, the Jewish understanding. And so this is really uh, Moses' um, you know, last kind of will and testament. We'll talk about that in a minute. Um, but one purpose is preparing the, this generation to enter the land and to be good stewards of the land. Um, also to remind them not to repeat the faults of their fathers of the last generation, right? We see him do that over and over and over. Um, also, we really have to keep in mind that there, things are going to change whenever they enter the land. And so this is kind of Moses' way of setting up this change. Uh, two massive changes. It, it, one is that in the wilderness, yes, they were in the wilderness, and they complained about it. And it you know, in, in, in all points of fact, it was probably pretty rough. And yet, they were, they were all one group, one, one, one nation, 12 tribes, but one nation, around the Mishkan, where Shekinah was, right? So they, they had the, the presence of God right there, you know, in, in the neighborhood. I mean, they were all right there, no matter where they moved. Um, they, were, they were right there centered around the Mishkan and the priesthood and everything was so accessible. Um, along with that, uh, you know, they, they had their food provided for them. Uh, they had their protection provided for them by the, the pillar of cloud and the fire and, the, and, and Hashem fighting battles and, you know, and their sandals not. They had provision and their clothes not wearing out and all these things. And so they, they really had some advantages in, the, in, in Bamidbar that they would not have when they entered the land. You enter the land, you're spread all throughout from north to south. And so Jerusalem may be several day journey to get to, uh, you know, to where the presence is, to get to where the priesthood is, uh, where you bring offerings, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, when you get into the land, um, God gives them, them the, the obligation of clearing the land out and making sure that, uh, that they can settle in peace. And, and surely, you know, he was with them through that, but the implication is like, now it's your job. 
um, along those same lines, surely he would bless their crops and, and agriculture, but they had to plow the ground and, you know, stuff didn't fall from the sky, literally. Uh, they had to make sure that they were growing and that they were faithful and, and all these things. So things were going to change a lot. The other big thing that was going to change is that they would have no Moses. Now they would have Joshua, but even if Joshua was sitting here today on this podcast with me as a special guest, Joshua, son of noon, um, I think he would say like, I'm no Moses, you know, I'm never, I'm never was going to be a, a Moses. And so this, this man of ultimate humility that even offered to have his own name, his own reputation wiped out of history for the sake of these people, he would not be there with them anymore to teach them, to intercede for them, uh, you know, to, to, to counsel them. I mean, just all, there's no Moses. And so um, th- this is his last will and testament. This is Moshe's last will and testament. So one of the ways to read Deuteronomy is as that. This is Moses, Moshe's last kind of hurrah. This is his, his three greatest sermons all given in the last few weeks of his life as, um, as a parent who, if you have kids or have had kids of, you know, adolescent age or, or adult age, um, it's that first time that they're going out by themselves, taking the car out for the night by themselves, going to be with some friends. And, um, and there's, you know, there's some things that you definitely cover in that conversation. Um, you know, it, it's, it's Moses' way of, of really giving them the last exhortation, last challenge, last reminder before they go into the land. Um, another way to read this, which I think is really, really, really cool, and I only found this a, a couple of uh, a couple of years ago, and, and taught a lesson on it. But um, there is a uh, a contract, a type of contract, and relationships in the ancient Near East. And those of you that studied A and E, you know this: the suzerain vassal contract and relationship, where a nation, a big, strong nation cares for and protects uh, nations that are smaller and weaker than it, and in, res- in response, they give their allegiance uh, to the, the bigger nation. The bigger nation is called the suzerain. The smaller nations are called the vassal nations, and, um, and, and they would drop a contract uh, when they would enter this relationship. It wasn't all like, you know, herky-jerky. It was very formal, and we have a lot of these, co- we don't have, I don't have, archaeologists Historians, scientists have a lot of scholars have a lot of these copies of these contracts that were uh, that were made up between nations or parts of them. We can piece them together, and so Deuteronomy can very much be read as one of these ancient uh, suzerain vassal contracts. And so, in the, we have, for instance, like a, the Hittite uh, Hittite treaty. You have a preamble where the king um, the, the, it's spoken by the king who's making the treaty. Um, then you have a historical epilogue, which are the events, events leading up to the making of the treaty. Then you have the stipulations, um, and these are the, this is the, the stipulation, the standards of allegiance that are required to this, this covenant, this treaty. And then you always have it followed by the blesses, blessings and curses. That's what it's called in the Hittite treaty. Um, then you have witnesses, and then lastly you have arrangements for succession and preservation. Uh, after these kings pass or you know, after these dynasties go, what, what's going to happen later? And so we can see that really, really clearly in the book of Devarim. And uh, so we can read it as that. And yet this is not a treaty or covenant between two nations. This is a covenant between the nation of Israel, the vassal state, and the suzerain Hashem, uh, the, the ultimate, the king of the universe, right? Avinu um, HaMelech. And so th- that's another way to read this. 
Um, if, if we read it like that, again, kind of drawing on the parent-kid thing, your kid's taking the car out for the you know, first time, meeting, picking up some friends, going on a date, whatever. Um, you, you, we tend to follow this kind of treaty, this Hittite kind of, you know, this A&E treaty kind of thing where we, we give a preamble like, okay, you know, this is what's happening. Let's, let's just talk about what's going to happen. And then a historical prologue maybe if your kids have been known to, to not be always perfect, which most of us were not. Or if they're going to be around some friends that you don't know about, um, you have some stipulations always as to how they're going to be, what time, where they're going to go, where they're not going to go, etc. Uh, you have blessings and curses usually, you know, like, hey, if you bring the car back in one piece, blah, 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 etc. If you don't, etc. Um, and then, you know, witnesses. You might swear by heaven and earth if you're a single parent, <laughs> you know, whatever. Um, our parents do it together, brothers and sisters around, whatever. Maybe they're friends, whatever. And, um, and so we, you know, we do this same kind of thing in our everyday, uh, our everyday agreements. We just don't, we don't think of the Hittites or, or, you know, or the, the, uh, uh, the Babylonians or the Syrians or the, you know, whatever, uh, whenever we do it. But Deuteronomy definitely fits that. And so there's, there's a few different ways to read Deuteronomy. And of course you have the um, documentary hypothesis, which is really popular in scholarship, uh, where Deuteronomy was done much later and was kind of pieced together through different people. I don't want to get into much of that because I, I, don't, I don't really subscribe to that so much, but there are multiple ways to, to read it to get the most out of it. So um, what I want to do is I want to kind of fold Devarim and Vayetchanan, the first two Parshot of Devarim in together, uh, and I want to talk about one main theme that I see running through both of these, and that is faith. You may say, like, wow, that's really original. Never heard a talk on faith before. <laughs> and so, um, but I, I want to bring some points that have been really helpful for me and maybe helpful for you. So as we start to think about faith, um, I would like for you to just take a moment and think about what, when I say the word faith, what would be your one or two word or your short phrase definition of faith? What would be the, the definition particularly that you grew up with or that you were taught as a younger person? Uh, what did your church teach? What did your fellowship teach? Your congregation? Maybe you grew up messianic. What was your, what was the kind of, this is what we distill the idea of faith down to because faith is a hard word to define. Uh, it's like love. It's, it's like, it's one of those ethereal kind of, it kind of floats around. And, um, we use love in all kind of different ways. Um, as they did in, in the ancient times, we can say, man, I, I really like, I love pizza. Right. And then you go home after work or you wake up in the morning and you tell your spouse how much you love them. And those are two, we mean two very different things. Um, but yet we use the same one word, right? So there's a lot of diversity in the word. And, uh, and faith is the same way. Faith can mean trust. It can mean belief. It can mean hope. It can mean faithfulness. It can mean loyalty. It can mean all these different things. And so the context is really important. Uh, but most of the time we've been taught a, a distilled definition of faith that usually means something like belief, right? It's belief. And, um, and, and growing up as, and, and not even just really growing up, growing up, I had a, a you know, pretty fundamental conservative definition of faith. Um, but then getting into more spirit-filled movements, um, you had stuff like altar services, altar calls and stuff, and, or you had people sick and we'd go and pray in their homes and, and prayer ministers, you know, or, or, you know, elders, pastors, whatever, uh, prophets, evangelists, whatever they would say, you just got to have more faith. You got, you know, or, or sadly and tragically, you know, many, uh, I've been in many circumstances where I've, I've seen spouses 
um, pass away over cancer or whatever, and, and their surviving spouse was told, well, it's because you didn't have enough faith that God didn't heal them, or they didn't have enough faith. And it's just tragic and toxic, and uh, it just makes me, it makes me frustrated even to this day uh, to think about things like that. But this idea of faith, um, I want to talk about in light of these last two partiotes. So um, we're going to talk about faith as kind of belief or mental assent. That we, we believe that God exists, and that's what does it for us. That's what gets us into the kingdom, just have faith. Or that's what answers our prayers, just believing with a, with a mental uh, in our minds, um, ha- convincing ourselves some way that God will answer our prayer. Or I don't know what it looks like to have, you know, I, I've been so confused. What does it look like to have more faith? Because what's been modeled for me in a lot of situations, like, well, people squeeze really hard, you know, or they cry really hard, or they, you know, they fall down on the floor or whatever, and that's supposed to... That's supposed to illustrate the amount of faith that they have, and um, I just that doesn't that doesn't really make sense to me. I've tried all those methods, and it doesn't seem like it doesn't seem like it was it was very very helpful. And I, and I don't want to be too cynical. Um, all those things are great, and a lot of those experiences were were valid. Um, and yet, I think there's something deeper that we can that we can learn. So, um, I want to talk about uh, the Israelites here, particularly in Moses' opening kind of opening um, discussion and, and talking to them. And we're going to read uh, Deuteronomy chapter 1, just a few verses. We're going to read verses, uh, we're going to start at verse 29. Uh, Deuteronomy one twenty nine says, Then I said to you, do not be broken and do not fear them. This is after the, the spies, the report of the spies. Um, Hashem your God who goes before you, he shall make war for you like everything your God, uh, like everything he did for you in Egypt before your eyes. And in the wilderness, as you have seen, that Hashem your God bore you as a man carries his son on the entire way that you traveled until you arrived at this place. And then here's, the, here's Moses' critique. Yet in this manner, in verse 32, yet in this manner you do not believe in Hashem your God. You do not have faith in Hashem your God. Who goes before you on the way to seek out for you a place to encamp with fire by night and to show you the road that you should travel with cloud by day? So Moshe is, is castigating, is criticizing, critiquing Israel for not having faith, not believing in God. So what does that mean um, in light of how we define faith? Um, what does that mean? Does that mean that they don't, they don't understand that there is a God? Well, they saw, they saw the plagues, right? They saw the, the, the manna. They saw the, you know, the, all the miracles, the cloud. And, the, and, and Moses even... He even lists like, these are things that you saw, you witnessed, and yet you don't believe. And, um, and so it's, I don't think it's not that they don't believe in God. So there's something else going on that is hindering or hampering their faith. And that's really what I want to kind of drill down on. So most of us know that faith um, in Scripture, in the Hebrew, in the Tanakh, is the word emunah, right? Uh, Aleph, mem, vav, nun, hey, emunah. And that is the word used for faith. Uh, one of the really interesting uh, places where this is used, uh, this word is used, is actually way back in Exodus. And I, I bet you miss it, or you, you probably don't. You guys, are, you guys and gals are all good Bible, Bible readers and Bible students. But I have missed this for the longest time uh, until it was brought to my attention recently by uh, a lecture I listened to by Rabbi Foreman. And so in Exodus chapter 17... Uh, we're going to read verse 9, starting verse uh, 8. Verse 8, it says, uh, Amalek came and battled Israel in Rephidim. And Moshe said to Joshua, Choose people for us and go do battle with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. And Joshua did as Moshe said to him to do battle with Amalek. 
and Moshe, Aaron, and Hur ascended to the top of the hill. It happened that when Moshe raised his hand, Israel was stronger. And when he lowered his hand, Amalek was stronger. Moshe's hands grew heavy, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. And Aaron and Hur supported his hands on one side and on the other side. And he remained with his hands in faithful prayer until sunset. And Yehoshua weakened Amalek and its people with the sword's blade. So, did you catch where the word Emunah was? You, if you have the cool little apps with the links and stuff, you can see it. But it says that when Moses' hands grew, he- grew heavy, they lifted his hands, and he remained with his hands faithful. Some translations say steady or steadfast. That's the word Emunah. So just uh, not kind of off topic, but that's just one of the colors of the word Emunah that we maybe have not ever considered before. To have faith in God is to remain steadfast or faithful to God. Faith, faithful. So that's just one of the places it's used that you may not catch in the English. I think it's really cool. We'll continue this right after the break. Don't go away. Ladies and gents, welcome back to the second segment in this episode of Image Bearers Radio. So we're talking about faith, emunah, and and really the point of this this uh, episode is is about growing our faith and about uh, how to establish a good, strong, uh, lasting faith and what that even means, what that word, that ethereal, airy, kind of floating around word faith looks like. And so um, we're talking about Moshe, and we read in Deuteronomy 1, how he is critiquing the people that after all these things that Hashem has done, they still didn't believe because of the report of the ten spies, the, the evil report. And so what's interesting about that is when we, we look and say, like, what does he mean? He, he lists the things that they experienced themselves, and he says, you didn't believe. And so I have to ask myself, what is, what is he getting at? What does that mean? And what I've come to is that he's not, he's not, a, not critiquing their failure to believe that God exists from a mental standpoint. Obviously, they know that there's something going on, that, that, that Hashem is, is moving and doing. I mean, there's a pillar of fire by night and a pillar of cloud in the daytime, faithfully, all through their journey. They have to know, and manna is falling from heaven, and the, you know, and water from a rock. I mean, who does that? So, they, so mentally, they have to know that God exists. And yet, I think he is... is uh, is invoking their rational or maybe irrational basis for their lack of faith. So just say it again. He's not appealing to their failure to believe mentally that God exists. He's appealing to their irrational basis for their lack of faith. And that, that contradicts their experience, right? So in, in Moshe's world, it seems to, and in the early Israelite world, and I think, I think all through the Tanakh, and I think even in the New Testament, which we will hopefully get to before the end of the episode, um, faith doesn't come from nowhere. Faith, doesn't, faith is not an ex nihilo thing. Out of nothing, you just have faith. Um, but for Moses, especially here in Deuteronomy 1, it comes from observing valid and proven 
experiences and reasons for, for faithfulness, for trustworthiness, right, of who God is. And so this, um, this kind of stems, again, from a, a lecture I heard from Rabbi David Foreman, uh, who I love. You guys will know that. I, I love all of his stuff, buy everything he's got. It's, it's amazing. Um, but he takes a spin off of Maharal, the Maharal, and, he, and Maharal talks about three times that Imunah is used in the Exodus narrative. So this is from Egypt all the way to kind of where we are today, but mostly in the book of Exodus. And um, so we're going to read those, those three, uh, three sections really quickly, and I want us to talk about uh, the, the points that he brings out that I think are really interesting and really foundational for a growing and vibrant and rational faith, a rational faith. Um, because the, the, the way faith was, was taught to me is that, well, you just have to have blind faith, right? Just blind faith. And, and while I think there's value to blind faith in many instances, I also know that that creates a lot of struggle, not only in first giving your life to God and surrendering to, to Yeshua, maybe, but even in, in the after part. Because believing that there is a God, believing that, must, that, that God loves us, and believing that He sent His, his Son uh, to rescue us and redeem us, really, folks, let's be honest with ourselves, that's the easy part. Those of you that have served God for 10, 15, 30, 50 years, I think you could amen that, that, that you're, you're coming to God. That's the, that's the easy, being, being redeemed is the easy part, right? That's, that's something that God does and that we, we just, we receive it. We, we accept it as being done. It's the day after that. It's the day after that you have that experience. It's the month after that. It's, it's when you, you come to this and yet your marriage is falling apart. It's when you're faithful to God and yet your, your money is running dry. It's when you're faithful to God yet your kids are walking away from God. It's, it, you don't get that job promotion or you're, you know, you're, something happens to your health or to your home. Or, that's where this faith thing really, really starts to – you enter the major leagues there, right? Um, where, and, and so there's a vast difference between first coming to Hashem, which can tend to be more of a blind faith, and then this journey. Um, Israel kind of exhibited a blind faith, but, but not even really then. So I really struggle with this idea because um, they 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 saw the plagues, right? And, and they saw the rescue. They saw the Red Sea. That was part of their redemption. And so there, there's a lot to, to think about as we think about this complex issue of faith. So we're going to start in, in, uh, in Shemot in Exodus chapter 4, and we're going to just read verse 31. And... Um, no, we're going to start in 29. Exodus 4, 29. It says, Moshe and Aaron went and gathered all the elders of B'nai Israel. And Aaron spoke all the words that Hashem had spoken to Moshe. And he performed the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed. And they heard that Hashem had remembered the children of Israel. And that he saw their affliction. And they bowed their heads and prostrated themselves. So see, even here as, as uh, Moshe and Aaron are introducing this idea of yod heh to the people and, and asking for their allegiance to follow him out in this exodus, Aaron does signs, right? He, he proves that Hashem is faithful by these signs. And, and what Maharal pulls out of this is the second part of this that we read. It says, um, the people heard that Hashem had remembered and they saw, and that he saw their affliction, and they believed, verse 31. 
And so he takes from this empathy. The, we have to know that, that God is a God of empathy, that he empathizes with us. He's not far off somewhere. He's not only here when the times are good. He's, he's not only empathetic to those of us who, who perform a certain way or keep whole things together or have a certain status or a certain organization or administration to our lives. He's not only there to those of us who are really self-controlled. I say those of us. I'm not really self-controlled. Those of you, maybe, who are really self-controlled and, and, and really are a mover, a shaker, and really effective and influential and all that kind of stuff. He's empathetic to every single one of us. And so what we're going to develop through this in the next few minutes is that we're talking about faith in Hashem, and yet what we need to do is expand this to faith in each other and not just, not just you know, consolidate this into an up-and-down type of relationship, but it needs to be a side-to-side relationship because faith in God is no good without people, and faith in people is really no good without faith in Hashem. So um, empathy. When, when Moshe comes to the elders of Israel, Moshe and Aaron, um, they see the empathy that God had, that he heard about the, that he, he heard their cry and that he saw their affliction and he remembered them. And they said, wow, this God has empathy for us. And as awesome as that is, and as, as we need empathy so much more now today for each other um, than maybe we ever have. I know we say stuff like that a lot, but this is a time when we really need to empathize. We need to sit down and listen to people and empathize with people, not just sympathize. Um, empathy really is, is not enough for me to, to throw my to surrender my life to you or really to God. Um, empathy is wonderful, and we need empathy, and yet it's, it's, not, it's not enough. So we're going to go to the next passage, and this is in Exodus chapter 14, and uh, we are going to read uh, about the at the Red Sea. So this is the end of chapter 14, and uh, we're going to read verses 30 and 31. And so it says, On that day Hashem saved Israel from the hand of, of Mitzrayim, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore, and Israel saw the great hand that Hashem inflicted upon Egypt. And the people revered Hashem, and they had faith in Hashem and in Moshe, his servant. So you've got a God that is empathetic, that's one, that's, a lot of people even miss that. That's so healing and so restorative that God empathizes with us. He understands, he understands that we're messed up and he still empathizes. That's just, I, sorry to keep going back to that point, but that's amazing. And yet, what good is empathy? Again, if, you're gonna, if I'm going to put my trust in you, if I'm going to give my life over to you and, and trust you to carry me through, or to walk it, at least with me, walk with me through. What good is empathy if you don't have the power to either fix my situation or to walk with me through it that I would walk through strongly, powerfully, right, with, with significance and, and walk through victoriously? And so number two, the, the Israelites saw the power of Hashem. So empathy paired with power that Hashem has the power to help me in, in growing our faith and establishing a, a rational, vivacious, strong faith. We need to always remember that Hashem is empathetic towards us. But we also need to remember that He has, He is, He is and He has the power to either fix our situation or to empower us to walk through it. Ideally, He is Emmanuel. Emmanuel, God with us. 
So even you might be saying, well, yeah, well, I've been praying for stuff and God hasn't fixed, you know, this situation or that situation. Maybe not, but you know what? You are surviving it. You're making it through it. And that, and the reason you are is because he is Emmanuel. He is walking with it through you in his power. And he is, he is giving that power to you. You are feeding off of that power, that hope, right? And so empathy and power. And so let's talk about the, the last passage that's in, uh, in Shemot 19, in Exodus 19. And this is at Sinai. And I think this one's really, really, really cool. So this is at, at Sinai. And we're going to read Shemot 19, verse 9. And it says, Hashem said to Moshe, Behold, I come to you in the thickness of the cloud, so that the people will hear as I speak to you, and they will also believe in you forever. And Moshe related the words of the people to Hashem. So empathy, power, and this last one is understanding. Hashem told Moshe, I'm going to come to you in the cloud, the invisible, untouchable God that the nation of Israel and Moshe himself never even saw the, you know, the, the full expression of. How is the nation of Israel supposed to, to covenant with this God they can't see, that they can't touch? Uh, and and what, how do we expect them to do that? How do, how do we expect each other to do that? And so... Hashem does this really cool thing, and he says, I'm going to speak to you in their hearing so that they can see that I understand you and you understand me. And thereby, that's an example for this, a, a, a model for them to go, you know what, he understands me, and I can understand him. That interface between heaven and earth, between, between the King Almighty on the throne and Moses, the, the, Adam, the Adam figure, the dirt figure, that interface between heaven and earth, that the people of Israel realized we can, we can interface heaven and earth as well. This understanding, how incredible is it to have a God that understands us and that we can understand? There's so many in, in Israel's history and at this time, the, the surrounding nations around Israel were dealing with gods that they didn't understand. You do any research, any history into Canaanite, uh, Phoenician, Hittite, even Egyptian, um, Babylonian, any Mesopotamian um, deity and worship. They, they did, if it didn't rain, they thought, oh, well, the gods are mad at us. Let's go throw a bunch of blood, you know, in their temple and, and, and let's, you know, sacrifice our kids and let, whatever. whatever. They, we, don't know, we don't know what's going on, so we're just going to cut ourselves and we're going to, you know, all these things because they didn't understand their God. And the tradition that they had, had, had grown up with, I mean, read Enuma Elish, um, is that the, the gods were, were sick of them. The gods detested humanity. They were slaves to the gods. And they were their, they were their servants and, you know, to feed and to make sure the gods were clothed and they, they were pretty and their hair was done and all, they were perfumed and all this stuff. And so they had a really twisted way of, deity, uh, way of understanding deity. And the, the super radical thing about the way that God deals with Israel is that he totally flips all that stuff on his head. And he goes, no, Moshe, you know what? I don't want the people to wonder who I am and wonder how I work. I don't want them to wonder about my character and my personality and my reputation. I don't want them to worry and wonder about all that. I want to speak to you so that they can hear, so that I can be approachable. And that is so, so radical in this time. And I think it is even today, it's radical. It's a, it's a radical understanding. So empathy, 
Empathy is radical. Sympathy is one thing. We go, oh, bless your heart if you're from the South. Oh, bless her heart. You know, that's what we say when we're trying to sympathize with somebody. But empathy is really listening and really feeling what a person feels and, and entering that struggle with them. Power is radical. There, I don't know about you. I'll just be super transparent and please think what you want. Um, but I'm just going to be super transparent. I, I tire of saying, well, oh, I'm, I'll pray for you. Not that, I, not that I'm diminishing the, the power of prayer or the, the, the vehicle of prayer or, or any of it. It has nothing to do with that I don't think prayer is effective. But at some point, I, I, I grow tired of just saying words and just feeling sorry or empathizing with people. I want to be able to help. I want to I partner with God to help. I want to bring food to a single mom who's having trouble feeding her kids. I want to, I want to pay the light bill for a family that the dad just lost his job and they're, they're struggling and, and pay their utility bills. I want to provide a car for, for you know, someone who's, who's down on their luck and, just, and life is just beating them around. I want to help you know, re-roof a house or, or clean a yard from someone who's had tornado or hurricane damage or flood damage or whatever. I, I want to feed people that are in catastrophic situations. I mean, you, yes, you want to pray for them. You want to empathize and you want to pray and you want your, your prayers to be full of burden and yet you, you want to do something. You want to have the power to make a difference. And we want that from each other. I covet people's prayers. I want them to pray for me. But at some point, I, I would like for somebody to step in and, and help me find a solution, fix it, or help me fix it, right? So power is a radical thing that we underestimate. Lastly, understanding. Understand. Listen, there's so many things about me that I don't understand. <laughs> I know there's, a, I know a lot of people around me probably think, man, there's some things about Joe I just don't get. Well, welcome to the club because I've lived with me for 41 years and there's a lot of stuff about me I don't understand. Things that I do really well that I don't understand why I do them well and things that I really, really mess up. And I don't understand why I continually and faithfully mess these things up. And yet, there is a, there is a God that, that understands. He understands how I'm wired. He understands how experiences, life has affected me and, and challenged me and wounded me and warped me in certain ways. And even with all of that, he knows me better than I know myself, and yet he still empathizes with me. He still empathizes. You know, it's easy to go like, oh, well, I know their history. I know their decision-making patterns. And so if they're going to make the same decisions and have the same outcomes, then there's nothing I can do for them. And some of us get like that sometimes, and it's easy to get like that, except especially when you see people in, in kind of cyclical ruts. You know, they make the same decisions, same outcome. They ask for help. They get help. They're good, and then you know, sometime later they're back in the same situation because of the same. It's hard to empathize with people like that. And yet, in every one of our lives, we are all in cycles of destruction in some area. It may not be as public as other people's. It may only be in our thoughts, or it may only be in our emotions, or it may only be in our mind, or whatever. But we are all have some area of cycle that we fail at. And we have a God that understands why we do that, and he still empathizes with us. And then he offers us his power. He offers us his, his ability. 
his 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 victorious overcomingness. That's not even a thing, but that's what he does. That's what it is a thing. That's what he offers us. And so in in our relationships with other people, we 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 need community so desperately. We need community in in the in the religious you know in the religious communities. We need strong, faithful, deep, rational, and foundational relationships. And yet many times we don't have them because we don't empathize. We don't use the power that we do have to fix what we can. We don't understand. We don't take time to understand. The, the thing about this is that this doesn't come easily. And one aspect of faith that I, I never just really, I think I knew in my bones it was part of it, but I was just scared to, to believe it was true because it kind of feels sacrilegious from, uh, from my upbringing. But this stuff is not easily is not easy, and it doesn't happen just out of nowhere. But you know, understanding God's empathy doesn't happen out of nowhere. Understanding His power doesn't happen out of nowhere. Understanding His 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 understanding of us and understanding Him doesn't just happen. It, it doesn't just God doesn't sprinkle faith dust on us, and all of a sudden we go, "Oh, God's empathetic and powerful and understanding," and and I'm going to give my whole life over to Him. I think it's fascinating that in you know, we we give a lot of shade, we throw a lot of shade on Thomas in the Gospel of John, chapter twenty, I believe it is. Um, and we, you know, doubting Thomas, old doubting Thomas, you wretch, you. Uh, but if you read that passage, uh, it says that Yeshua on the first day of the week he comes in. The, 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 the disciples are in the room and the doors are closed, and Yeshua enters. And it says that we, we read about Thomas, and, and Thomas goes like, hey, on, you know, a week later, so unless I see his hands and his side, I'm not going to believe. And we go, oh, Thomas, ye of little faith, Tom, old doubting Thomas. And yet we don't read a few verses earlier where the disciples are all together, like I said, and the doors are closed. The scripture says that. John says that. And Yeshua enters, and what does it say he does? It says he showed him his hands and he showed him his, his hands and feet and his side. So the disciples even, the Tamidim, they had evidence for, for Yeshua's resurrection, that it was him. He didn't just, a voice didn't just speak and go, you're never going to see me again, but you have to believe that I'm resurrected. No, he showed up. And he said, I, I know this is going to be hard to believe that, I've, I'm ra- that the Father raised me from the dead, but I want to show you. I want to show you that I've conquered death in the resurrection. And then we get down on Thomas, and Yeshua comes back and he says, Here, I want you to put your hand, put your fingers, feel my hands, put your fingers in my side. I heard I had a pastor once that instead of preaching a doubting Thomas, he preached a sure man. Yeshua, see, Thomas hanging around with Yeshua, he would have known of his empathy. I mean, all of the different people that Yeshua dealt with and 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 helped and and healed and and delivered. He would have known of his power through those same instances. He would have witnessed these things. And, and he would have been in those campfire moments, those walking on the road moments, where he would have heard Yeshua's understanding and, and, and the, the back and forth with the disciples. He would have gotten all of these parts as just being around. He would have also heard Yeshua say that everyone's got to count the cost. No man builds a house without first counting the cost. And Thomas said, if I'm going to give you everything, if I'm going to give you everything, I'm counting the cost. And I think Yeshua, 
I think he, he approved of that. He said, you, you believe, you all believe, not just Thomas, you all believe because you've seen, but blessed are those that have believed and they've not seen. Is there a greater blessing for blind faith? Yeah, maybe. But I tell you what, there's a lot of evidence in Scripture, Tanakh, Gospels, New Testament, Revelation. There's a lot of evidence for belief based on experience. The hard part of all of this, the, 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 the hard, it's, it's hard to recognize God's empathy sometimes. It's hard to recognize his power and recognize his understanding sometimes. But I think the hardest part of all of this is that the surrender of ourselves to this empathetic, powerful, understanding, loving, faithful God, the surrender of that is on us. Completely, totally, 1,000% on us. God doesn't put you in a magical state where you all of a sudden become submissive. God doesn't, again, sprinkle some kind of faith dust on you where you all of a sudden are in the mood to surrender. We're not surrenderers, especially if you're an American. My goodness. We don't surrender anything. God lets us. He invites us. He shows himself to us through experiences. He proves himself even before we've ever looked for him. But the surrender is all on us. We have to choose to surrender. We have to choose to take that step. We have to choose to not only believe, we know it mentally, but to act upon it, to change our lives, to surrender our lives, to stake our entire destiny, and to convert ourselves from what we were into what he would make us to be. That part is all on us, full and complete surrender. So I hope these, these three components have helped you or will help you in the days to come. Thanks to Rabbi Foreman and to the Maharal for coming up with these things. I love you. Bless you. Until next week, shalom, shalom. Shalom. 